0: Uh, this is a news radio 1440 podcast
1: welcome in everybody and thank you so much for being with us here on tactics where speech isn't violence tolerance isn't love and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you for being with us on the program We do have real quick one housekeeping thing uh, unfortunately the cutbacks that have resulted from the pandemic and you know it's it's very difficult to make money in radio from advertising when all of your advertisers are hurting too. And so this thing has affected the radio business and so for the foreseeable future because you may remember on News Radio 1440 there was a time that Kevin Elkins was was furloughed and was not able to be on the air for a little while that actually has has unfortunately reached tactics as well. So uh what w- the word we got from corporate today is that Tactics is is perfectly fine to continue on the internet. But they cannot afford to keep it going on the weekends, so it could be temporary. It could be permanent. We just don't know. But for the time being, tactics will not be appearing on News Radio 1440 on the weekends. It, you know, we'll see where it goes, and we intend to keep doing the show on the internet as often as as possible. You know, honestly, this could cause a hiccup with that, but we don't know. We'll have to see. But for right now, we are on the air, and we thank you for being with us and making us a part of your day regardless. Uh, we know it's a tough time right now. We especially like to thank all of our sponsors to News Radio 1440 who have stuck with us and and we thank the ones that you know had to tighten up the belts a little bit and, and maybe think about using their advertising dollars to to keep their business afloat and and we feel for you. We genuinely wish you the best. Don't hold any animosity towards you for for pulling advertising but you know it it does just kind of Uh, show some of the ramifications of the situation that our country is in. And we know that a lot of you out there, our listeners as well, are sort of feeling the strain from that. If you're not, good for you. And and certainly we wish you the best as well. But for those of you that are, that are people that, like a lot of my audience, running a small business or working for a small business or a local business here in the river region, We know that things have been tight, and we do appreciate those of you that have supported us even throughout this difficult time. So, since we are a program focused on local news, we do have one that's kind of national news, but since it's about people from Alabama, we felt it was uh, certainly relevant. Doug Jones, that's right, Abortion Jones, the senator from the state of Alabama, and yes, that does leave a sour taste in my mouth each and every time I say it. Senator Doug Jones of Alabama, he actually spoke at the Democrat National Convention, which is pretty odd considering that, you know, the Democrat National Convention is a big stage. It's it's one of the two big conventions. And the way that the Democrat National Convention is doing it is a little different this year. They're doing a virtual convention, so there aren't actually people in there. Uh, I... <laughs> Granted, I know that it's not contested. I know that they don't have a brokered convention or anything. So I know that the vote is largely symbolic anyway, and they don't have to worry about this, but it is kind of funny because the idea behind the national conventions that take place every four years is to elect somebody as the nominee for president. That's the goal. Now, in this particular situation, I understand that that's not contested, that Joe Biden won and and actually despite, you know, he he didn't win like completely hand over fist. I mean, he didn't just destroy everybody else, but he won in a pretty convincing fashion. And so I get that that's not something that's contested and there's not really even a chance that the vote might go different or a different person could get nominated if they did have a live convention. I understand all of that, but it is kind of funny. Like th- th- that's something that they're doing right now. And, and they're having to do like a virtual vote and all this. So Uh, It is interesting, like, obviously I don't have much in common politically with the Democrats, but it is interesting to see the logistics of of how all of this is playing out. And Doug Jones, the senator from Alabama, was a part of that last night. He was actually asked to speak. Now, I don't remember the last time a senator from the state of Alabama was asked to speak at either convention. We have been a Republican stronghold for a very, very long time. I don't remember the last time that, well, I don't know. Did Sessions actually speak at the Republican National Convention in 2016? I don't believe that he did. I know that he was definitely campaigning for Trump, and that's the whole reason that he had to recuse himself. And we won't go down that rabbit hole. But I I don't believe that he did speak at the RNC because I'm I'm pretty certain I would have remembered that and would have been covering it. So this may be the first time that a person, an Alabama native, has spoken to a national party's convention in a really, really long time. I have, I would doubt that it's the first time, but it's, it's been that. But despite this, I'm going to go ahead and give you a little insight into the way that I plan my shows. I was fully expecting, 100% fully expecting to have about 30 minutes worth of material to go through at the very least, like 2025, and then have to go through it with a fine tooth comb and basically make If you know, maybe an hour to an hour and a half long show that pretty much exclusively focused on Doug Jones' speech. Yes, I know that that is painful to watch, and that's why I was going to do the hour-long special to give you the commentary that goes along with it so that you could watch the speech and it's a little bit more bearable because you're listening to me instead of Doug Jones. But they only let him speak for two minutes. Like, it's It doesn't even hit the two minute and 30 seconds mark. It's, I I believe the entirety of his address was about two minutes and 14 seconds, if I'm not mistaken. So we do have the entirety of the speech. I guess it being short, it it gives us the advantage that way. We're going to be playing the entire speech, but the whole thing is two minutes. We only have two clips from the speech. So we'll go ahead and and give you the, uh, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing that they gave him so little time, but we'll talk about maybe the reasons for that in a second. But here's the first half of Senator Doug
2: Jones speech. I'm Senator Doug Jones from the great state of Alabama. Growing up in the South meant growing up in the midst of stark divisions, but it was here in Alabama where Rosa Parks helped ignite a movement by refusing to give up her seat on a bus where freedom riders of different races came together in pursuit of equality. And it was here, in Alabama, where John Lewis marched across a bridge toward freedom. From a young age, I knew the hope that comes from seeing good people work to heal our divisions. It's what led me to become the United States Attorney, where I convicted two Klansmen who murdered four young black girls in a 1963 Birmingham church bombing and delivered long overdue justice. I'm standing in front of an exhibit dedicated to their memory. Alabama has shown me that even our deepest divisions can be overcome because each of us want the same thing to be treated fairly and given the same opportunities and the freedom to live with dignity and respect. Now some politicians try to pit us against each other, but I believe that Americans have more in common than what divides us. Okay. So before we get into the actual logistics of the speech.
1: It actually was pretty cool that he chose, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that is the archives building. So the the state of Alabama archives building and that display, because I'm I'm pretty sure I've seen that one before and I've been through their museum. If I'm not mistaken, that is actually the, uh, the, the place where that is being filmed. It could be maybe something very similar to it in Birmingham. I don't know, but I, I think that's the one right here in Montgomery. And so that is actually a pretty cool backdrop. And it is cool that there are a lot of people in the nation that are seeing that, and it's a really good museum if that happens to be where it is. And so that's a nice little plug, I guess, for the state of Alabama. But here's the thing. Uh, thus far, I don't have anything really to argue with Senator Jones about. I know it's rare that he and I don't have any quarrels or, or problems with anything that he said. But the only thing that I will take issue with... And frankly, I don't take issue with it. I just think it's ironic that other people do. He goes through all of that and talks about John Lewis, of course, who recently passed away, away a civil rights hero, uh, talked about the, the Freedom Riders and Rosa Parks and all of that stuff. Wholly appropriate. Agreed with every word of it. There is not a point of contention between Senator Jones and me on that particular a uh, line of thought. However, the reason that I do take issue with it is because the very same people that the Democrats are basically making their bread and butter off of, and and the the people that are leading the charge on this sort of new wokeness, would have disagreed with one statement in Senator Doug Jones' speech. Now, I agreed with it, where he said that really, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but but basically what it boils down to is that everybody wants to be treated equally and to be given the same opportunities. I can get on board with that. I don't think that there is a reasonable American anywhere in this country, because, of course, if they do believe this, they would not be reasonable. There's not a reasonable person in this country that would disagree with that. I think that that's the vision that Dr. Martin Luther King and men like John Lewis, that, you know, they want it. But the new woke left would actually say that's a bad thing. They would actually say that equality of opportunity is not good. That you actually have to have things like affirmative action or reparations or all these other crazy things. Now, does Doug Jones actually believe that? I don't know. I don't know if he would side more with the the uber-left, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes, and the Antifas, and the Black Lives Matter of the world that are saying all these crazy things, or he would not necessarily agree with them. He certainly hasn't spoken out about them or talked about it if he does disagree with them. But I do find it somewhat ironic that I find myself aligned with Doug Jones on that idea, if that is actually the idea that he espouses, although i I very much doubt that Senator Doug Jones would speak out against uh because even if he believes that he doesn't have the the courage of conviction to say this, I very very much doubt that Senator Doug Jones would speak out against things like affirmative action, but I'm certain that you know that's just comes with the course but here's here's the deal though Jones hangs his hat upon the role that he played in prosecuting the Klansmen that bombed the church and, and, you know, injured those, those four little girls and should. Like, that, it doesn't put him necessarily, like, in the same mantle as people like Dr. Martin Luther King or John Lewis or other civil rights leaders like that. But that is a big accomplishment for him as a United States attorney. And he should hang his hat on that. That is something that Doug Jones can be proud of. And I'm saying this is somebody that is not a fan of Doug Jones in any way. But that's a big accomplishment for him, and and I don't have a problem with him talking about it, taking credit for it, mentioning it, and, and talking about the importance of that, which of course happened in Birmingham. There's nothing wrong with him discussing that and talking about it. But let's be honest about it. Again, I think that he should be commended for it. I'm not trying to take away all the credit, but my issue is, let's not give more credit than is actually due. Doug Jones kind of lucked up and got that case. I mean, he just happened to be the U.S. attorney when that came up, and and he was a newly minted, if I'm not mistaken, United States attorney when that case came up, and he was the one that it just kind of fell to. And then it came up to a young Doug Jones to do the prosecution there. And he did, but let's be honest, was that like a super hard case? Was there a a big degree of difficulty in actually making sure that those guys got prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, which they should have done? Uh, I don't think you could make that case that this was something that was incredibly difficult that Doug Jones... I mean, like, yes, again, I don't want to take any credit away from Doug Jones. That is due him for that. But at the same time, let's not pretend as though he's, you know, in the same league with Dr. Martin Luther King or anything like that, or that he's even in the same league from just a competency level, not even talking about a moral level, from a competency level with somebody like, uh, I don't know, Alan Dershowitz or something like that. This was kind of a slam dunk thing. It's glad that it was done, it was needed to be done, and if somebody had been incompetent and botched it, that would have been a terrible, terrible thing if these guys had not, you know, gotten the sentencing that they deserved. But I'm just saying, let's be honest about that. Even though I'm glad that Senator Doug Jones did that, let's not pretend that this was something that he uniquely could have done, that he, you know, it was part of his job. He kind of lucked up and got the case when it happened, and then when he got the case, he didn't have to be necessarily all that particularly skilled in order to win that case. Still a good thing that he did it. Still deserves a pat on the back and a round of applause. But let's not pretend that this is the the best thing ever. That's all I'm saying here. I, I just think that there needs to be a bit of a more measured response. Uh, maybe Senator Doug Jones is a very talented attorney. I'm not saying that he isn't. I, I don't know enough about his his background in legal work to be able to speak to that. I'm just saying that this particular case is not the best gauge for it. So let's go ahead and look at the second part of the, the speech, the second half of the speech, which is hilarious because it's a 60 second clip. And uh, this is the more controversial part of what he said last night.
2: And in November, we have a chance to elect a president who believes that too. I've known Joe for more than 40 years. I met him as a wide-eyed law student and he's been my friend and champion ever since. The Joe I know is exactly the leader our country needs right now. He can bring people together to find common ground while standing up for what he believes is right. After years of bitter partisanship, he can unite our country and get things done for working families and everyone looking for a better future because it's not about what side of the aisle we're on. It's about whether or not we're on the side of the people. The great John Lewis would often quote the old African proverb, when you pray, move your feet, and then challenge us to do just that. As a nation, he said, if we care for the beloved community, we must move our feet, our hands, our resources to build and not tear down, to reconcile and not to divide, to love and not to hate, to heal and not to kill. In the final analysis, we are one people, one family, one house, the American house, the American family. Vice President Biden understands that and he is who we need as our next president.
1: All righty then. So the fact that he, first of all, before I get into any of the substance of what he was talking about, the fact that Doug Jones remembers Joe Biden as a young lawyer, I found that pretty darn amusing, you know, because Joe Biden's like 175 at this point. Uh, But anyway, Jones, the guy has known for months. In fact, I would say multiple years. I I think about, just based on his track record, based on what he's done, roughly a year to maybe a year and a couple of months after getting into his office, in other words, winning election against, um, uh, against Roy Moore and becoming the United States Senator from the state of Alabama, I think he's known since then, like maybe a year in there's absolutely no chance that I'm going to get reelected zero. And that's why he has for the past two years, really done basically whatever the heck that he wanted to do. He's had one of the most liberal voting records in Congress. And keep in mind, I mean, granted the Senate is a little different than the house and that you can actually get away with being a little bit more extreme on the liberal side than you can in the House of Representatives, even though, well, I say that. It depends on who you're looking at. But Doug Jones, last I checked, his scores for Liberty, Heritage, Freedom Works, all of those organizations are floating somewhere around like the 12 and 15 percentile, which places him as one of the most uber-left senators in the country. Like, he's right around there with Kamala, Warren... Actually, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, in one of the scores, I remember very specifically, Bernie Sanders had a higher Liberty score than Doug Jones. So he's been an uber-left radical for at least the past two years of his tenure as a senator from Alabama, and so he's doing this because he knows he he knows there is zero chance that he gets reelected. Tommy Tuberville is going to be our senator. Granted, he wasn't my first choice, but that's who we've got. And even though I'm pretty darn skeptical of Coach Tuberville being a senator for the state of Alabama, I have no doubt that he's going to be leagues and leagues better than Doug Jones. That's never even a thought that crossed my mind that he may not be as good a senator as Doug Jones or or even comparable, to be perfectly honest. But Jones has known that, I mean, really for months now. And he has acted accordingly, and that's why he is willing to do this, that he is willing to march up on stage, or in this case, in front of a camera, for the DNC convention and make the pitch to Joe Biden, despite the fact that he knows that the vast majority of his constituents will despise that. At this point, he doesn't care because he's already made his bed. He already decided, look, I'm not going to get reelected anyway. I might as well do whatever I want to and try to get in as many, like vote for as many liberal policies as I can. Because there's no sense in even trying to get reelected at this point. And frankly, from a political perspective, like if you take out the morality of it or you take out what I want, you take that out. Politically, that's the smart move. If I were Doug Jones political advisor, and, and thank goodness I'm not, but if I were Doug Jones political advisor, that's exactly what I would have told to him too. I'd say, "Look, Senator Jones, you ain't getting reelected." it's it's just the way things are you might as well vote the way you want to vote now what's hilarious about that is that that is what happened with Doug Jones and depending on the senator of course you'd have to take it on a case by case basis democrats in both the senate and the house do this all the time they either decide that a their reelection is so unlikely that they're just going to do whatever they want or b whether or not they get reelected, they're going to push their agenda regardless and just see what happens. And if they get kicked out of office, they get kicked out of office. Oh well. Not saying every Democrat is like that. Some are a little bit more conscientious about losing their seat. But there's a lot more Democrats that are willing to do that than Republicans. Republicans, because they see politics as such a game of access to the system, the vast majority of them, with a handful of rare exceptions, the vast majority of Republicans will never do anything that they think even might endanger their re-election. And that is a sad commentary. But frankly, the thing that I do like about Doug Jones, and that's a short list, don't get me wrong, but the thing that I do like about Doug Jones is I do at least respect the fact that he acts upon his convictions. Now, he lies about what his convictions are. He tries to bill himself as some kind of moderate or a blue dog Democrat, and then he goes out and advocates for what would effectively be the most liberal uh, uh, administration, I mean, just based on what they're saying and their policy proposals, more liberal than even Barack Obama was. And of course, he signs off on all of the check marks for all of the Democrat policy proposals and his voting record. We have already discussed that. Yet he will pretend as though he is some kind of moderate and then goes out and does stuff like this. And I do think that that's because he knows he's not getting reelected. But my point in all of that is I do dislike, I, I do abhor the dishonesty. But I do kind of respect the fact that at least he does act on his personally held beliefs, which most Republicans refuse to do. Now, what's amazing about this thing, though, because so far we've looked at these two clips as though they were in a vacuum, what's amazing about this speech is that they're combined. Because remember, the first part of that speech, Doug Jones comes on and talks about how far we've come, Rosa Parks, the Freedom Riders, the Civil Rights Movement, all of that stuff. Nothing controversial, all of it good, any rational American would look at that speech and, you know, they're not necessarily going to be wowed by it, but they'd be like, yeah, okay, I I totally see what he's saying there. And the second part of the speech is a pretty generic, bland endorsement of Joe Biden. In and of themselves, neither of those two things are especially spectacular or something that would draw a lot of eyes or attention or strike anybody as particularly controversial. What is amazing, though, is that these two clips are not isolated. They're together in one short, two-minute, 40-second or 14-second speech that Doug Jones throws together, the fact that he is coupling progress and I mean real progress, not progressivism, progress progress when it comes to racial relations and civil rights in this America uh, in, in this country. And couples that with an endorsement of Joe Biden is absolutely freaking astounding. And it's because Joe Biden himself has issues with race and has for a very long time. As his own vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris pointed out, at the very least, the best thing that you could say about Joe Biden is that he's at least sympathetic to racists. Maybe not a racist himself, because that's how Kamala Harris started that little spiel when she was attacking him back before she was his vice president pick. Maybe not necessarily a racist himself. But when the absolute best case scenario is that he is sympathetic to racist and certainly does not denounce racist, it's not a great starting point. And to sort of play to this and to show you how astounding it is that Doug Jones can, in the same breath, Talk about how important it is to see everybody as equal and give everybody equal opportunity and, and not base our decisions or the way that we treat one another on the color of our skin and then couple that with an endorsement to Joe Biden? Here is Joe Biden speaking at the funeral of Senator Robert Byrd, who was an actual Klansman. Now, not just a rank-and-file Klansman. Granted, I don't know a whole lot about the, the ranks inside the Ku Klux Klan, not just a rank and file clansman, a grand wizard, one of the leaders of the clan, and on top of that, a KKK recruiter. In other words, this is a dude that went door to door and spoke to people who were contemplating joining the clan, but weren't sure that it was a good idea. And Robert Byrd is the person that tried to talk them into joining the clan being a good idea. This is the kind of person that he was. If we were to put it in terms of, and I know this is weird, but it's just what I'm familiar with, so I'm using it as an analogy. If the KKK were a religion, and we were to equate the KKK to the church, then this guy wouldn't be somebody that just, you know, shows up to worship every now and then, and, you know, maybe contributes some to the church, or shows up to fellowship. No, this is a guy that's in the pews every Sunday. He is a minister, a preacher, a evangelist for the KKK as involved as you can possibly be. And this is Joe Biden speaking at this man's funeral.
0: For a lot of us, he was a friend and he was a mentor and he was a guide. (laughs) But ladies and gentlemen, of course, it's more than the name. We're not going to forget. It's his courage. He died like he lived. He died like he lived his life. He never stopped fighting. How many people would have hung on as long as he did? How many people would have had the ability to get back out of that hospital bed and get in a wheelchair and come in and vote, vote for this? He never stopped thinking about his people and the things he cared about. Well, he served the land he loved. He served the people he loved. He served the people who were in his blood.
1: Well, to be fair, what Joe Biden is saying there is not a hundred percent incorrect. He did serve his people and the people that he did care about, according to Joe Biden. And I don't think this is inaccurate are the people that are in his blood. Now, I know that that's not exactly the way Joe Biden meant that. I know that he wasn't talking about that he only serves white people, but that's how it comes off. And Very poor choice of wording on the part of Joe Biden eulogizing a Klansman on that. And some people might be tempted to say, well, yeah, but Robert Byrd, he was in the Klan a long time ago, but he's reformed and he turned his back on that. Let's not forget that in 1994... It was Robert Byrd that actually said that he would rather see, and this is after, remember, he left the Klan, a couple years after he left. He said that he would rather see the country destroyed and see old glory trodden down on the ground than to see America overrun by, and I'm quoting him, race mongrels. That's the man that Joe Biden refers to as brave and a mentor and a friend and like the greatest guy that you could ever want to meet with. And unless you think, well, maybe there was still some of that lingering, but it wasn't just for political expediency. Remember that years later, if I'm not mistaken, in the 90s, when questioned about this, Senator Byrd said, uh, when asked about whether or not he regretted joining the Klan, his advice to young politicians said, oh, don't get that albatross around your neck because that could inhibit your ability to be in the political realm. Boy, that sounds real sincere, like he'd had a real change of heart and a moral change in himself, and that was the reason that he left the Klan. It's obvious that he still held those beliefs many, 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 many years after he was no longer an official Klansman. In fact, this wasn't just words, this was actions as well, because in 1964, Robert Byrd opposed the Civil Rights Act. And it would be one thing if he just voted against the Civil Rights Act. I mean, that would be one thing, right? Because there are guys like Barry Goldwater who actually did vote against the Civil Rights Act, not because he was against civil rights, but because he believed that it was unconstitutional because of one of the provisions that discriminated against particular states and and placed certain oversight on them and not others, which, by the way, the Supreme Court did strike down years later, agreeing with Barry Goldwater's position, but that's not what was happening with Robert Byrd. Robert Byrd not only voted against the Civil Rights Act, he filibustered it. He spoke for 14 hours, I'm not exaggerating. It was a record-breaking filibuster, the longest one in history up to that point. And in this speech he talked about how it was wrong for us to extend civil rights To black people, one of his reasonings included in the speech was that black people have smaller brains and are thus more evolutionarily similar to monkeys and inferior to white people. I am not making this up. You can look it up yourself. That's Robert Byrd, 20 years, more than 20 years actually, after he had left the Klan and reformed himself. That's Robert Byrd, the man that Joe Biden was speaking about so warmly. And that's the same reason that Kamala Harris on stage just earlier, well, I guess that would have been back in, was that in 20? Yeah, it would have been in 2020. Kamala Harris on stage this year was saying that, yeah, maybe Joe Biden's not technically racist, but he certainly doesn't have a problem with racist and segregationalist. Furthermore, uh, maybe, maybe you could write this off as, well, yeah, this is just, Joe Biden saying nice things about his friend at his funeral. You know what? I'm actually sympathetic to that argument because even with the racist stuff that I have a hard time getting past that I don't think I could associate with somebody that had done all of this unless they had had a real genuine change of heart that was abundantly clear to everybody. Even so, I I, I understand wanting to give the benefit of the doubt to somebody who is eulogizing a friend of theirs. The reason that I point all of this out is because we're living in a cancel culture now that is so intolerant of anything that might even be deemed somewhat slightly racially sensitive to somebody that we are taking black people off of the packaging of rice and syrup even though black people overwhelmingly bought that brand over other brands, despite it supposedly being racist and tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln because it wasn't woke enough. And Joe Biden gets a pass for this? You've got to be freaking kidding me. Joe Biden can do all of that in this current cancel culture mentality that we have, where we can't even have black women as the spokespeople for breakfast pancakes. But Joe Biden eulogizing Robert Byrd, a former Klan recruiter, we can just kind of ignore that. Nobody need talk about it. Cut off the lights on your way out. But it's not even just Robert Byrd. Joe Biden himself doesn't seem to be it's not even that he's just not up to standards today. In other words, he's, he's not up to the standard of, you know, the 20-something hipster that is so concerned about microaggressions. No, 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 Joe Biden has said things that would be deemed wildly offensive in the 1970s and 80s. Here's some of Joe, and by the way, has in those eras and recently. Here's some of Joe Biden's racist greatest hits. I think the two-party
0: system, although my Democratic colleagues won't like me saying this, I think the two-party system is good for the South and good for the Negro, good for the black in the South. Um, and uh, uh, other than the fact that they still call me boy, I don't think they've, I think they've changed their mind. About <laughs> Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Oh, you cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. So, am I, I'm not joking.
1: Oh, he's not joking.
0: Okay. You're going to put y'all back in chains. Not the first sort of mainstream African-American who was articulate and bright and clean and nice looking guy.
1: I mean, that's a storybook, man. I think that last one is my favorite, just because it's Joe Biden saying, Barack Obama, he's, he's nice, he's clean, he's articulate. That's like a storybook. Comparing an articulate, clean, nice-looking black person to a fantasy world. <laughs> I mean, yes, Joe Biden is a gaffe machine. I get that. He has been his entire political career. But dang it, like, that's not just racially insensitive. People were rightly offended by that. But nobody talks about that. And somehow this is the guy that the Democrats have chosen to be their representative for the president of the United States. And lest you say, yeah, but these are things that happened a long time ago. Maybe maybe Joe Biden has evolved and, you know, he didn't meet today's standards back then. But certainly he's learned and grown and, and really moved out of that phase yeah, these are clips from earlier this year, not a decade ago, not two or three years ago. This is 2020.
0: You got more questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. Yes. And by the way, what you all know, but most people don't know, unlike the African-American community with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community. With incredibly different attitudes about different things. You go to Florida, you find a very different attitude about immigration in certain places than you do when you're in Arizona.
1: So Joe Biden essentially describing the entire black community as a monolith that all think and vote the same way. He said there's a lot of different because when he's comparing them with Hispanics, he says, yeah, there's a lot of different beliefs and a lot of different attitudes. So black people don't have different beliefs and don't have different attitudes. They all just kind of think the same way and move the same way. Now, in light of all this and, and what is going on here with Joe Biden, maybe you could make the case still that he's just kind of hokey and a gaffe machine. And he's certainly not the most racially sensitive but maybe he doesn't actually believe that black people are inferior. Okay, yeah, you're being extremely generous there, especially by today's standards, which all of which I don't agree with, and I understand that. I'm just pointing out that they are inconsistent with the stated values of Democrats that are going to be presumably voting for him this November. Maybe you could write all of that off to that as well, but at the very least, at the bare minimum, He's very sympathetic to people that are racist. He doesn't mind having them in his inner circle with Senator Byrd. And, based on especially those last two clips that we were talking about, he certainly doesn't appreciate black voters. He essentially thinks of them as all a monolith, that they all vote and act and think the same way, whether they're in Chicago or Alabama. You know, black people, they're just all basically one unit, and I already have their vote. And granted, the polling data supports that. I can understand why he would have that misconception based on the polling data that he has where he basically didn't do anything for black people or black voters, uh, and, and really didn't, you know, play to that at all. And despite all of this overwhelmingly won the black vote by a wide margin in the Democrat party, it was actually black voters that saved him in the South Carolina primary, but he certainly doesn't appreciate black voters nor do I think that he feels as though he owes any allegiance or obligation to them. Now, personally, I don't like people being broken up by race. I don't like looking at people as merely voting demographics. But Joe Biden basically saying, yeah, I got the black vote wrapped up. I don't really have to worry about that one anymore. And saying, if you don't vote for me, you're actually not a black person because black people all vote as a monolith with a handful of rare, notable exceptions. I assume he was talking about people like Thomas Sowell or Clarence Thomas or Candace Owens, you know, people along that line. But this isn't even a a problem that is in the distant past. This is who Joe Biden is and has always been. And so I think that it is really just absolutely astounding that these two clips happen at the same time, that Doug Jones can endorse Joe Biden having just talked about all of the progress we've made, the fact that he has coupled those two things together, despite it being a very short speech, the fact that those things are butted right up against one another is really just astounding. So the question then becomes, why? Why Doug Jones, and why did they give him two minutes to speak? What's with the short timeline? I mean, two minutes to speak. Most speaker introductions last longer than that. When you watch these conventions, the way that it usually works is they have a person come up and introduce them on stage. You will find very few of those introductions that last less than two minutes. So why would they go through all the trouble of asking Senator Doug Jones, a senator from Alabama that has zero chance of winning re-election? Why would they bring him up to the DNC? And then after going through that trouble, why only give him a two-minute time slot? I actually have a theory that I think is correct. So what's going on here is Doug Jones is nothing but a token virtue signal. I know he's not a racial token, which is the way that we usually talk about tokens in those terms. But the DNC has a problem with race. And their candidate, Joe Biden, also has a problem with race. The DNC has a history. They are the party of the Klan, the party of Jim Crow, the party of slavery. And they know that that's something that reflects poorly upon them. And so as a reaction to this, they want to do a virtue signal. They want to do something that shows everybody, no, we really are on the side of the angels. We really, you know, the Democrats weren't that. They're trying to distance themselves from that image. And so they're going to take somebody who is a current Democrat senator, who, unlike a lot of Democrat senators in the 1960s, Was not somebody that was opposed to the Civil Rights Act. That was not opposed to things like Jim Crow. That was or that was opposed to things like Jim Crow. That actually was on the correct side. And Doug Jones is the perfect avatar to throw in front of people to 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 sort of try to make that claim to try to distance themselves from their own racist history. That's what's going on here. They want Doug Jones, a person that has known Joe Biden a long time, to stand up there and vouch for him and say, no, 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 he's, he's really not a racist. He's actually on the right side here, despite all of the things that he has said and done. See, they would rather you take Doug Jones' word for it than Joe Biden's, because Joe Biden's word is going to come out like the montages that we've seen thus far. So Doug Jones is a useful puppet for the DNC that they will trot out there for those two minutes. And then the second that he's done accomplishing the purpose that they sent him out there to do, pull his strings and drag him right back out of the limelight. Because the thing is, and I'm not just trying to slam Doug Jones on this, even though I've, I've done a fair bit of Doug Jones slamming. So, you know, it's not that I have a problem with that. Just saying Doug Jones is not a particularly electrifying speaker. Nor is he somebody that has a very interesting story past that one event in his life that sort of put him in the spotlight. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm probably a better public speaker than Doug Jones, but I'm not saying that, I'm not saying this just to tear him down or whatever. I'm just saying, as far as Democrat senators go, there's several more that are more engaging, more electrifying, that are going to be better for that. So Doug Jones was basically them to throw out just for two minutes and have him say, Hey, look, I'm a person that actually fought against Jim Crow and actually fought against a lot of these things that were going on. And also, I like Joe Biden. Frankly, if John Lewis were still with us and still in good health, they probably would have sent Senator Lewis out there and ignored Doug Jones. I mean, I really do think that that's probably what happened just now, is that they threw him out there to basically make that pitch and then drag him right back out as soon as he could, which I mean, may actually work in Doug Jones' favor, to be perfectly honest. I've said for a long time now that Doug Jones knows he's not going to get reelected, and he's been actually bucking for a job at the DNC, which is probably not a terrible idea for him. I mean, if you're Doug Jones and you want that as, as being, you know, your thing that you do, it's probably not a bad deal for Doug Jones to get a little exposure, get his 15 seconds of fame... And since he knows he's got not going to be able to win a statewide office in Alabama, you know, why not go for that and do the bidding of the DNC, do whatever they want you to do, and then be able to get a job with them later. So, you know, Doug Jones may be able to do that, but ultimately what this is all about is it's not even about black people because the polls show overwhelmingly so, like it's not even close. Black people don't have a problem with Joe Biden. And just like a lot of other things that are so offensive to the left, what they're really placating there and what they're really trying to play to is the woke left. Really a bunch of woke white people that feel guilty about supporting a party that was the party of the Klan and the party of slavery, and they're trying to figure out a way to get rid of that cognitive dissonance they have in their head about doing so. That's what Doug Jones was there to do. He was there to make woke white people that have a problem with Joe Biden's racist past to make them feel a little bit better about themselves when they inevitably do pull that lever because orange man bad. That's what Doug Jones was there to do. He was trying to clean up the cognitive dissonance of a bunch of urban white people that are going to be voting for Joe Biden. The black people obviously don't have a problem with him. This was a get out the vote scheme for them not the black vote, and so that's ultimately, I think, the reason that the Democrats did this. And I guarantee you, because I know how these things go, I guarantee you, at least some form of that, or something darn close to it, that was the rationale for giving Doug Jones this speaking slot. That was the re- this was I'm sure workshopped in meetings behind the scenes, and that is the ultimate reason why Doug Jones was able to get this spot. So I've, I've got one other story that we're going to do before the break, and I have to share it with you because it's just so darn funny. Uh, Twitter actually suspended the Babylon Bee earlier this week. That's right. The Babylon Bee, if, if you haven't, if you don't know what the Babylon Bee is, frankly, I feel sorry for you because you've been missing out. The Babylon Bee is absolutely hilarious. It is a satire site And it definitely leans politically right, but it was actually kind of started as as more like a Christian satire site. It it does jokes about church and that kind of thing. They'll occasionally work in like a Joel Osteen joke or something like that. But the Babylon Bee, a satire site, was banned from Twitter or suspended, you know, for a little while. And the reason is because they said that they were sharing false information about Kamala Harris. I mean, if this is not just putting on brilliant display the double standard of big tech and just people on the left in general that they just are so ardent to crack down on anything that might be incorrect about Kamala Harris. Because here's the thing, like there is false information about Kamala Harris floating out there. I don't deny that at all. I mean, that's true of every politician. But what's funny about this whole thing is you don't typically see this kind of stuff happening to, to liberal media, like, to my knowledge, Twitter has never temporarily banned The Onion or other satire sites that are set up to tell jokes to people on the left. Why is it that it's only conservative outlets like the Babylon Bee that get smacked for this? Now, maybe it was an honest mistake. I very, very much doubt that Twitter intentionally woke up that morning going, we're gonna find some conservative satire site that we can ban today. Like, that's not what happened, and I get that. I get that it probably was a mistake. But it's a mistake that only seems to affect people that lean conservative. This isn't one that, when it comes to the liberal sides, they just never seem to have a problem with it, even if it is satire. And of course the information was fake. It's satire! That's the joke. But the Babylon Bee, of course, they take it in stride, and you you gotta love them for this. Uh, This was their response that they put out on Twitter. So check this out. Yep. We're back. Twitter destroys our headquarters with a drone strike, but we are being assured it was not a mistake. (laughs) Uh, Those guys do crack me up. So, yeah, it's just sort of the underlying thing there is this idea that it's completely accidental. Like, that's supposed to make us feel better because keep in mind, this is a media company. And their bread and butter, their life stream, and I know this because I do this myself, I'm, I'm on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and Twitch and all of those venues right now, the lifeblood of any kind of internet company that their primary source of revenue is people reading their site, it comes from social media. And when you torpedo that, I mean, even, yeah, you could say, and, and I would agree, Twitter's a private company, they have the right to do this if they want to, I get that, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm still a libertarian, guys. So I understand that, but it's just so hilarious to me. They bring that up and they're like, yeah, well, they kind of cut off our primary supply of income, but you know, we've been assured that it's fine. It was just a mistake. They didn't mean to. Obviously that's a exaggeration because it's a joke, but obviously that's an exaggeration of what happened with the drone strike thing. That's, you know, it's not a bad analogy for how to look at all of this. Uh, Here was another one that they used to respond to. This was the the actual article. (laughs) So, uh, Twitter apologizes after intern accidentally sets coffee on destroy all conservatives. (laughs) uh, I love these guys. They're just fantastic. So It's brief, so I'll read you the story here. You just read the headline. So, a large number of conservatives and satirical Twitter accounts that criticized the left were shut down yesterday and what ceo jack dorsey says was quote a totally honest mistake dorsey claims an intern set their coffee on a button labeled destroy all conservatives which is loca- <laughs> which is located in the commons near the area near the coffee machine easy to miss if you're not paying attention it's right there where people are always setting their coffee new guys hit it all the time There is no ill will meant. It's just a button. Total mistake, Dorsey reports. When asked why they would install such a button in the first place, Dorsey said, I believe we installed part of the non-approved humor eradication protocol. I don't know. If you ask me, Twitter has been probably a little aggressive on banning people on the right. Dorsey was then asked if the button would then be removed to prevent further incidents. Nope. Nope. He answered. It's staying right there, but we will be extra careful. I promise. So, uh, Dorsey then had to end the interview because he had just accidentally stepped on the ban anyone I who says learn to code floor time. So what that whole thing is a spoof off of is, is that especially like here around the, the middle of it here, um, that we, you know, we put that in place as a part of our eradicate all conservative viewpoints kind of thing this does happen pretty frequently on Twitter. Twitter's actually been one of the worst when it comes to preserving free speech and trying to censor out people that they don't like or that don't politically align with them. And it's always chalked up to some kind of algorithm. It's always, oh, it was just an honest mistake. We were trying something out and it just got rid of it automatically and that kind of thing. But ultimately what that boils down to and and sort of the complaint that the Babylon Bee is making through satire, of course, The complaint that the Babylon Bee is making here is, why do you have these things in place that get rid of this anyway? And how is it that whenever they do go awry or something messes up or there's some kind of miscalculation, why is it that it only affects us? Why is it that HuffPo never just gets accidentally banned from a social media site or or Vox or any of the other big liberal sites? Why is it even other satire sites? Uh, you don't see guys like Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Kimmel, when they make political jokes, you don't see their stuff getting censored on Twitter and, and YouTube and all of that. Why does it seem like it only happens to us? And that is because, pro- I'm going to go all the way back to like basically computer theory here, but basically computers are frustrating for the same reason that they are helpful. They do what they're told. And maybe they had no intention. I I very much doubt that they intended to get rid of any conservative satire sites. I, I don't think that that was the intention of Twitter. I really don't. But the fact that that's the only one that it targets, it shows that the algorithms that you're putting into this when you're trying to help it learn how to detect things like hate speech and fake information, that you're feeding into that only things that disagree with your worldview and the things that you perceive to be correct that's the problem here they're training these bots on things and and probably when they do give the bots examples of things that should be filtered i still think that it would be better just not filter filter anything just you know free speech and and just let everybody make their own decisions but if they are going to do this filtering, I imagine what's happening is they're actually training the bots. They're training the computers and using sources that they genuinely don't like, and they're not programming into them anything that would interrupt their worldview. And that's the reason that you're getting these results. And every single time this sort of censorship happens, it only seems to happen to people on the right. That's probably the reason why. So... It just does show that there really is, even if it's unintended for it to come to the surface, there's a pretty obvious anti-conservative bias at Twitter, and the existence of a destroy all conservatives button is a perfect satirical metaphor for the attitude that really is held by people like Jack Dorsey and, and a lot of the big tech companies. Not all, but certainly a lot of them. Let's go ahead and go to a break here real quick, and then we'll be back in a minute on tactics.
0: Uh, this is a news radio 1440 podcast
1: that was stupid i know it was stupid really stupid hey
0: i just said it was stupid
1: (laughs) and for today's daily dose of stupid you know i almost it's really two people because it's, it's elizabeth warren and the dnc that are responsible for this daily dose of stupid but i almost don't even want to blame warren I almost want to put more of the blame on the DNC itself and the people that were scheduling this. So here's the story. And I think you'll see what I mean. Once you understand the details behind all of this, Elizabeth Warren, that's right. Pocahontas was asked to speak at the native American caucus. Last night, I swear, I'm not making this up. This is not a Babylon B article. Don't kick me off Twitter. Like, I, this is a real, actual thing that happened last night, if you don't believe me. And I felt like I had to get a graphic, because people would not believe that this was an actual thing, because, I mean, nobody was watching the convention anyway. Yeah, so, Elizabeth Warren just spoke at the DNC. This, this is a thing that actually happened on Twitter, I swear, this is an actual thing. Did they not... One thing that has always astounded me about Democrats, I mean, always... There is such a gigantic lack of self-awareness. Did nobody think, um, could we maybe get somebody different to do this?" That nobody caught this really? Nobody thought, maybe we need to get another person that you know hasn't been pretending to be a Native American, even though they really weren't for you know, 30 years? Did seriously nobody think to do this? It's just astounding. My question is, serious question. Did you only speak for 1,024th one, 1, of the time that everybody else was? I felt that would have been appropriate, at least. The Democrats are just so completely devoid of self-awareness, though. And and what's hilarious, again, this is kind of like the last thing that we were talking about with Joe Biden. The, the issue here is not the standard that I hold myself to, even though with Joe Biden, it actually kind of was. Um, but, but overall, the, the issue isn't so much even, or, or the criticism doesn't originate necessarily even from my standard. It's their own stated standard that they completely ignore. Because we're told by the left, and I've, I've had people say this, that cultural appropriation is like one of the worst things that you can do. Cultural appropriation defined by them like dressing like a Native American for Halloween or wearing a Braves baseball cap. That, according to a lot of people on the left, is cultural appropriation. It's horrible. It's insensitive. I've even heard some people ridiculously enough equate it to things like genocide and slavery, that cultural appropriation, slavery is just a more severe form of cultural appropriation. No, it's not. That's ridiculous. They removed them from their culture and wanted nothing to do with it. Now, it was still horrible, but that wasn't cultural appropriation. But this is the standard, the ridiculous thing that we're supposed to believe now is that cultural appropriation is some type of horrible, evil thing. Even when it's just people having a good time, like I said, with, with Halloween or a baseball team or something like that. And yet, Elizabeth Warren, who directly benefited and profited from in her personal life, claiming that she was a Native American, gets a pass. How does that happen? And the only explanation is because there is no greater privilege in America than being a white liberal. And Elizabeth Warren is very likely the whitest liberal that has ever lived. I mean, we know that she is incredibly white thanks to her genetic test. But anyway, it amazes me that they can't even see that this is something that would be a bit of a... that there would be bad optics on. How can they not see this truck coming towards them? So Elizabeth Warren goes out there, and remember, this is someone that directly profited off of this stuff. That Elizabeth Warren actually applied to Harvard and Penn under the guise of a Native American, claimed she was Native American when she applied to them, then on top of that, contributed a recipe to a Native American cookbook called Pow Wow Chow, no I promise I'm not making this up, and did so under the guise of being a Cherokee. And. Actually, the funniest thing about that isn't even that she contributed to it under the guise of being a Native American. It turns out, after some research done later, she actually plagiarized the recipe for the New York Times. (laughs) So she wasn't even Native American enough to know a Native American recipe to cook the food. That's how white she is. And perhaps most egregiously, because it was actually against the law to do this, she lied on her Texas state bar exam claiming that she was a Native American when, in fact, she was not, which is actually a violation of Texas law to do so because you're lying on the bar exam. That's, a, that's actually grounds for disbarment. And nothing happened to her as a result of it. The way that these people strain at a gnat and swallow a camel is absolutely astounding. They got no problem going after a high school senior posing in her prom dress which happens to look somewhat like a chinese dress even though you know after some digging up and this is a real story that happened it turns out that the dress that she was wearing was actually one that the chinese designed after getting influence from european dresses and and fashion that kind of thing but you know without going into all that uh what's funny about all this is that they'll blow up over that and claim it's the most outrageous thing ever They'll blow up over a bunch of college kids wearing sombreros at a Cinco de Mayo party and claim that they're evil and racist and they're they're the equivalent to Nazis because they wear a sombrero and, and drink a margarita while eating chips and salsa on Cinco de Mayo. And Elizabeth Warren, who built her career at least partially, probably not entirely, I wouldn't say entirely, but at least partially under the guise and was introduced to people for years as like the first Native American law professor at Harvard that she can do that and directly benefit from. Now, maybe she would have gotten those jobs or maybe she would have gotten into those schools without applying as a Native American. We don't know, but the point is she did. And that may have been a contributing factor to her getting in. She directly profited off of lying about her heritage. And that doesn't count as cultural appropriation. But the college kids, you know, wearing a sombrero or, uh, you know, carrying around a katana or something like that, or or wearing one of those big rice paddy hats, that's cultural appropriation and that needs to be shunned. and, And we just need to go after those people and ruin their lives. But Elizabeth Warren can come within an eyelash of being president of the United States and we don't do anything to her for lying about her heritage for years. I mean, if that's not stringing in a and swallowing a camel, I don't know what it is. And with that biblical reference, we'll go to the chaplain's report. In
0: 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics.
1: Chaplain's Report today does come from the book of Samuel. We're going to be continuing our series in Samuel. And one of the things that you really need to to know about this, in case you didn't see our last episode, is that What's going on now is that Samuel has come to Bethlehem, the home of King David. He is there to anoint David. He doesn't know David yet, so he doesn't know who he's going to be anointing. But he has come here to the house of Jesse for the purpose of fulfilling that task. And so this is where we see this story start off in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 10, which says, When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For God looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made uh, Shammah pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. We don't really hear a whole lot about David's brothers. This actually is one of the very few passages where we do get to hear a little bit about them. We don't know a whole lot about them, but we know that his oldest brother, the one that originally Samuel believed to be God's chosen, is apparently a big strapping boy that looks like he could be the leader. He looks like he could be a king. And yet, he's not the one chosen. So, the question then becomes, why is God passing on David's brothers? What's wrong with David's brothers? Apparently, they do have the look. And this is not something that is completely ridiculous or unprecedented in Samuel's mind. Remember, that is who Saul was. Saul was a tall, good-looking young man that had a commanding presence that you could see as a king. And so... Samuel's done this before. He's the one who anointed Saul. He sees a similar kind of caricature popping up before him. He goes, oh, that's got to be the guy, obviously. I mean, he's, he's obviously the oldest. He's the one that just looks the part. This is the thing, though. We know why God didn't choose David's brothers. And that's because we have hindsight. We know that God chose David because David was the one that was most suited for the job. And looking back through history, I mean, granted, we don't have, like, a, a, you know, a what-if crystal that we could just look into and tell what would have happened if this had happened. You know, we don't have that ability. But God has hindsight and foresight. Since time is all happening at the same time for him, since he exists outside of time and, and basically holds all of time in his hand, then God has perfect foresight, hindsight, everything. And so he can not only see the situation and how it would play out if if this particular thing happened, he can see every possible eventuality out of every situation. So if God makes a decision like this, it must be because God knew what would happen if he appointed any of the other brothers to king other than David. He saw all of those situations, he says, David's my guy. He's the one I want to pick. But that's not the rationale that he gives when he's speaking to Samuel. Yes, all of that is true. I'm not saying that that's incorrect. But, he says, ultimately, the reason that he chooses David is because, Samuel, you're looking at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart. I'm seeing the kind of person that this boy is, not just who he was. Now, does that mean that David's brothers would have been terrible kings? Not necessarily. They might have been good kings. We don't know. But David was the best choice. Out of all of the people that were there, David was the one that was going to make the best king, the best leader for God's people, and God knew that, and that's why he picked him. But this is a great example of how sometimes God's wisdom just doesn't make sense to us. From a human perspective, there are a lot of times in the Scripture where a human being would have made a very, very different choice than God did. That looking at the situation, we would have gone, ah, let's go a different direction with that. But God has wisdom that we don't. He has foresight that we don't. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Because the rationale given here is not, well, Samuel, I can see the future, and so I know who's going to be the better king. That's not what he says. What he says is, I can see who these people are. I can see the heart. And I'm telling you, he's not the best candidate his little brother is. And I think one thing that that really speaks to the human condition on, I think that really the message that we're supposed to take away from this is that God sees things differently than we do. That when God makes decisions that we don't necessarily understand or, or we don't really get the math that God had to go to get there, there's a good reason for it. We may not see it. We may not know it. We may never know it on this side of eternity and maybe not even in the next one. But if God makes a decision, if He puts somebody in a particular situation, if He gives us a burden to carry, He puts somebody in our life, whatever it is, when God's providence interacts in our lives, it's intentional, and God has our best interest in heart, and He knows how that scenario is going to play out. That doesn't mean we always handle it correctly, but He knows how each situation is going to play play out, and that means... First of all, that God sees potential, where we only see what's right in front of us. I mean, Samuel had to just judge based on what he was going on, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Samuel, first of all, he hasn't even seen David yet. But Samuel was looking at who they are now. Maybe there's some of David's other brothers that are a little bit younger than the oldest one. They would have also made good kings and maybe even grown up to be more impressive and, and better looking and, and more like a leader than the eldest brother. But Samuel couldn't judge based on that. He had to judge based on, you know, what was going on right in front of him because he's a human being and he has limited sight just like us. God's not limited in that way. You see, when God gives us a task or puts us in a role that he wants us in, remember that he's not just based, basing that on the person that we are that day when he sets that in motion. He may be giving us a burden that's way too heavy to carry at the time, but He knows we're going to grow and develop as a result of that, and eventually we'll get to the point to where we can handle it. Because God can see our potential and sees not only who we are right now, but who we will become. God has the ability to do that in a way that we just can't understand. Not in this life, anyway. And I think also one thing that it should caution us on, a lesson that we could take from this, is that human beings are pretty darn easy to deceive. People can look differently than they actually are. Now, again, I'm not saying that David's brothers would have been bad kings necessarily. Maybe they would have been really good. But the point is, what this illustrates is that because mankind is looking at human beings and not at the heart of people, it's easy for us to misjudge them. I mean, if you don't believe this, just watch any guy that's around a pretty woman around his same age, if they're both single, I mean, the threshold for being deceived is pretty darn high with most guys with that. Like, they, they will trust somebody like that because they want to. And I'm sure it's true in the reverse, I'm just speaking from the perspective of a guy because, you know, that's what I have experience in. But understanding that, And knowing that we have frailties, there are things we can't see, and we will misjudge people based on their appearance, that is something that is going to help us in the future, because if we're aware of that, and we can remember that God sees on the heart, we can really solidify our trust in Him, and that He knows best, and that if He puts a person in our life or takes them out of our life, that there was a good reason for that see, ultimately, I think that the big takeaway from this, the big lesson that we need to walk home with is that when God enters our life and puts us in a situation, he is doing so because we're supposed to be there whether it's a combination of all the things that we've talked about tonight, because he knows the situation, he knows how it's going to play out, he knows every eventuality that is going to happen, he knows our potential and knows the person that we are going to be with. The big idea, the big takeaway from that is, if I'm in this position, it's because God wants me here. And if God wants me here, he made me well-equipped, I am adequate to take on this task that God has given me because he would not put me in this situation if I weren't. That doesn't mean that we don't need a lot of help from God on that. That doesn't mean we're not going to need help from others or anything like that. But what it does mean is whenever there's something that we feel is just overwhelming or we we can't get past it or why would God do this to us, remember that God knows you and He knows the situation. And if you are in this position, if He has given you a burden to bear, first of all, He's going to help you bear it. But second of all, He wouldn't have put anything on you that He didn't already know that you could handle. And it's not just burdens. If he puts you in a situation, it's because he wants you there. He put David there because he wanted David to lead his people. At the time, he put Saul there because he knew that he wanted Saul, at least for a time, to rule his people. He put the Apostle Peter in the way of, at the time and the place and the era in human history, that he knew he was needed because that's where he wanted him. And that's true of the other apostles and every other human being that has ever existed. We're here because it's where God wants us to be. And that's encouraging. Stay the course, friends.
0: Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio
2: 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.